Well, today is Friday the 26th, and I do want to remind people that we do have the Jazz Trombone Boot Camp that is open for registration now. It's going to feature some really amazing guests. Uh, Vincent Gardner, Andre Hayward, Michael Davis, Steve Davis, going to be a really fantastic Jazz Trombone Boot Camp in June 14 through 18th. If you want to go to nickfinzer.store, you can find that. Uh, if you're looking for some more recommendations of new things that came out today uh, on Outside in Music, we had a couple of great things come out today. Pull up the calendar so I don't forget. A great uh, bass player released an album. Uh, Mauricio Morales, his album Luna came out today. Um, Stephen Feifke with Veronica Swift, a new single came out today, which is really swinging. Uh, it's called Until the Real Thing Comes Along. You can check that one out. Uh, this week we also announced that Ulysses Owens Jr., the great drummer, has a new big band project that's coming out on the label. Uh, in May. And then uh, also another Eastman group. Well, two, the two guys that lead the band are from Eastman, uh, Owen Broder and Ethan Helm. Cowboys and Frenchmen is the name of the band. They have a video project that's out today. So if you're looking for new stuff to listen to, uh, those things are out this week. The, of course, on our label, my label, Outside in Music. I got to gotta give a shout out to those people. If you were one of the people that jumped on that first batch of mouthpiece orders, thank you. Uh, if you were one of those people, thank you for ordering. Um, right now, the shop is in Oregon, right? And just like last week in Texas, we had a big storm. They before Texas got hit, Oregon got hit with a with a storm, and so the they were down for a couple of days, and now they're behind on orders. So if uh, you go to my website, you'll see that they're they're marked as sold out, and they're just kind of temporarily sold out. So if you want one of those six ES mouthpieces, um, I'm all out of my stock, but they should be restocking at the at the factory soon. Uh, so if you do order one, it'll be, you'll be the first on the list. So just so you know, and if anybody out there, if one of the people that ordered is watching right now, or they watch it later, uh, we're definitely going to get it out to you. It's just a little bit back ordered because of the crazy weather. So thanks for bearing with us. It's been really exciting to see the great response and all these people checking out the mouthpiece. So I'm really excited to see where that relationship goes with Marcinkowitz. If you didn't see it a couple of weeks ago, we had Graham from Marcinkowitz on the show and we uh, went ahead and talked all about mouthpieces, all about Marcinkowitz, the history. If you want more super nerdy content, you can go and watch that one. Sometimes we get so kind of caught up in specific warm-up exercises or specific things to improve um, on our tone or whatever. And sometimes I think we just need to play melodies and just think about playing beautiful music. I was really reminded again about um, how important it is to just have a beautiful sound by listening to a new record from Shy Maestro this week. Has a colleague of mine, AUNT trumpet professor, uh, Philip Dizak. He's playing trumpet on there. This new Shy Maestro quartet album is called Human. Um, and I was listening to it and just reminding that it's just like this, your sound is the first thing people hear and it has to be the thing people remember. It really just draws you in and it's so important. And so I just was reminded of that today. And so sometimes, you know, I was watching some of my students give some some pointers this week to some other students. And um, I just was thinking about how we sometimes we get bogged down in the, the like specifics, the tactics, the details of like, oh, we'll play this um, flexibility and now you'll be able to do anything or you play this lip slur or that and this. And sometimes you just really have to focus on sound and you have to just focus on playing a melody. So and maybe just play something. But I just really hope people can, you know, take some time to think it's like it's not about what you're playing. It's about how you're playing it and about what you're focusing on and about remembering that things need to be beautiful, man. Um, you got to make stuff sound pretty sometimes and it just has to be nice. You know, all the hip stuff substitutions in the world aren't going to get you the gig. So sometimes, you know, I have 
a million ways to warm up. And I talk about a million different ways to warm up and, you know, get into your session for the day. But sometimes you just have to play some music, you know, just play a song. A great one is just like body and soul or some just ballad. I like to just pick nice melodies, just play low, slow, right in the mid register and just get warmed up. You know, sometimes you just need to play a melody, you know, and I sometimes we get, again, just caught up in like what we're going to play or like what, you know, what, what exercise we need to play to get perfectly warmed up. But it's like, no, just play some music, man. So I encourage you once in a while, just play some melodies to get warmed up. You know, it's all about sound. It's all about just trying to get the sound to open up by the end of it, starting to focus on resonance and trying to get the sound to open up. And of course, literally, those are the first notes of the day. So just trying to like slowly let it open up. Do you have any suggestions or exercises on how to coordinate the tongue and natural slurs? So I really, I don't use natural slurs that often because, and I was, we were just talking about this with a student this week and last week, but um, that I just don't find them to be particularly clean. They're good for certain things like doing turns and stuff like that, um, but you have to go back and forth. Just like with alternate positions, just like with uh, double tongue, multiple tongue, trying to match the, the single tongue to the multiple tongue, is you have to go back and forth. Like if I use a natural, if I use a natural slur on, on, on like like this, that was with a natural slur. But I, if I do it with a single tongue, 
a single legato tone. Just a little bit of tongue makes it so much cleaner, but it's still smooth, right? So here's, again, here's the natural. And then the second one was with a little bit of tongue. So as Steve Ture says, you got a tongue every single note. That's how I play. I mean, there's a lot of players that have a strategy of like letting the notes go across the break and using them to tongue, but that's not how I play. So you have to match them up basically is what you have to do. So do this. If you want to do, I mean, I definitely do it for turns. So a turn like something like that. So you gotta, you have to just match them back and forth. So I'm going to go and do one that's natural and then tongued, natural, tongued, natural, tongued. And try to match them up, you know, basically as, as best you can. And then more, even more importantly, is actually recording yourself, listening back and seeing like what it sounds like. And if you like what it sounds like, I personally like a cleaner way of playing than some other people like. So, um, which is nothing against the other ways, but you got a tongue of, to me, it's like you got to tongue all the notes. And if you just like, let it go and just blah, 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 it's, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like blah, 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 blah. if you just use the natural slurs, like e even on, uh, even on a turn, I'm going da -da 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 -da. if I'm using the natural break, I'm out, I'm changing the vowel sound so that it's three distinct notes. Everything has a, as an articulation, whether it's just using the slide in a different syllable or an actual ta 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 or doodle da do or da da da. I just I like that way of playing. I just find it to be a little bit more clean. Have slash do you listen to early swing bands, Goodman, Dorsey, Miller? So do you think people should listen to them, and what do you take away from listening to their music? Yeah, I think learning to play the style is super important. You know, in my jazz styles and that jazz styles class or jazz performance fundamentals class, whatever it's called, you know, we spend a whole day working on Tommy Dorsey, Sly Vibrato. Like, I just think being informed about the history is really important. Whether or not you play that way is kind of irrelevant to me. Like you should know how to, like what makes it sound that way. Um, and with my students, again, I've talked about this before, but we usually kind of work outwards from the middle. And that's kind of my just preference of educational strategy is like, okay, we're going to go to the middle of the history. So JJ Curtis slide bebop kind of stuff. And then we're going to go backwards and forwards kind of an alternating, um, instances. So we go back, 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 back to Kid Ori and all the beginning stuff. And we go forward to more modern players. So as students are learning more quote unquote advanced vocabulary, they're actually also learning simpler vocabulary to try to balance it out. But to me, it's all about knowing the style and be able to reproduce the style when you have to do it. Cause you never know when you're going to get called for a gig that calls for a specific style of playing. You know, I have one student that's super, super into like tea garden and prior. So, you know, we work on that stuff a lot, but there's a lot to gain from it. There's a lot of really like great blues vocabulary, simple melodic vocabulary that comes from that era. And, um, I can't say that I listen to it like that much when I'm not trying to study it, but um, there's some great arrangements too from Fletcher Henderson and uh, that whole era. So there's a lot to be gained and a lot to be listened from. So I definitely recommend it. Uh, Kevin says, if you're playing something legato like a Rochu, are you still tonguing every note? Tongue every note, man. Every single note. If you use the natural breaks, it's always going to sound different. Unless you can get your natural breaks to sound exactly like your legato tongue, you can tell. And for me, it's like you don't want to be able to tell. 
you know, and if you can get it to the point where you can't tell, then fine. But if I can tell that you're using the break because I hear with your slide or I hear like you falling from one partial to the next, I'm not about it, you know? So that's just what I think. So I tongue every single note, every single note, unless it's like a turn where I'm going da 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 and I'm still kind of articulating it with my changing vowel sound. Okay, Robert says, "How do you have any tips on how to approach subtone technique on the trombone? Hear it first. You have to have a concept for it, right? Open yourself up to being able to make that sound. So like, yeah, when I started playing, maybe it has a little, little bit of air in the sound. And then you can kind of get rid of it by focusing in just a little bit. So you can kind of like let more air in and out of your sound if you've got a good control of your sound. You know, a great way to work on that is to do whisper tones. So if you don't know about whisper tones, you can check out uh, some information about whisper tones and uh, practicing those. So that's how I approach it. It's just a sound concept thing. To me, it's not like a subtone thing. I guess it sounds sort of like a subtone, similar to it on the saxophone. But it, to me, it's just like a sound concept thing. It's like more like, oh, I'm going to... That's what it feels like to me, like like rather than like a really straight tone or like really resonant tone. It's just soft and warm and like wants to wrap you up in a hug, kind of like Curtis Fuller. That's kind of how I hear his thing, you know, his sound and his concept. Do you listen to less prominent bands thinking along the lines of Barnett, Rich, Herman, basically most bands besides Basie and Duke? Do you have friends, colleagues, or friends of those lesser known bands? Um, I guess I don't necessarily consider most of those lesser known um, yeah, I have friends that, oh, there's a lot of people that played in the Woody Herman band and Basie band and all of those. I like Duke Ellington the best. That's just because I'm biased and that's what I like. But do I listen to the other bands? I'm sure I have. Um, I don't necessarily listen to big band music by default, though. That's not always what I want to hear necessarily. I, you know, like it when it's done well, but I, you know, I like to hear individual voices and the artistry coming through and like, you know, I think big bands like can be that way, but sometimes they also aren't. And sometimes they're a little flat and a little bit um, just like clean and precise and not not like musically interesting. They can be. I'm not saying they are. I'm just it can be that way. So I don't always listen to them. And yes, I know people that have played in those bands. Favorite jazz vocalist. Why? I don't have one. Don't have a favorite vocalist. I don't think if I had to pick, I do like Nat Cole and Frank Sinatra. Um, I've never been a person. This is why. So I say this because like, even when I was a kid before I played jazz music, like I don't hear lyrics when I hear music, really like the words don't stand out to me. I don't listen for words. I, I, I just don't hear it. I hear like, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't do anything for me to like, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if there's words, like it doesn't sound any, any different. Like I just hear the sound of the voice, like and I'm not, and it's like, I have to actually be listening for the words, you know, but I don't hear them first. So like, I'm not necessarily drawn to vocal stuff as much as I am instrumental stuff. Maybe I trained myself that way. Maybe that's always been the case, but I would say even when I listen to pop music, like I, or growing up, like I never heard, I never really knew what the words to any songs were. Cause I was never listening to it. I like Nat Cole, Nat Cole and Frank Sinatra though, as a few, I mean, there's lots of great people, lots of great singers. But it's just not my. Um, I, I don't. I wouldn't say that I listen to enough to have a really like informed opinion. 
do you slash have you listened to orchestral classical solo literature? Yeah, of course, man. We listen to it every week. We have our departmental where our classical and jazz students all play, and then they're always playing different stuff, different parts of the rep. I mean, I was a classical mate. I had to do go through a classical um, couple years at Eastman and played lots of those pieces and enjoy playing those pieces. Last week, we um, talked about a tune. There's a Barat Andante and Allegro. That's a tune on my exposition album. Um, if you're interested in that, I kind of used the chord progression to write a piece, a jazz piece based on that. The, in, the like the first kind of opening of that Andante and Allegro. So yes, a Dutch asked, do you find it useful to practice the Charlie Parker solos? Yes. When I was at Eastman, uh, basically th- it was just like a, this is a very kind of interesting thing that happened. Um, so I had a friend named Charlie Halloran. He was a master student when I was an undergrad. Now he's in New Orleans doing amazing stuff. So he's a really great trombonist from one, some one year to the next, he all of a sudden like exploded like so much better in the fall than in the spring, at least in terms in terms of like jazz language. I don't mean like he wasn't good before cause he was great, but like all of a sudden just like exploded. And I was like, dude, what did you do? And he's like, Oh, I played the whole Omni book over the summer. I was like, Oh, okay, cool. So like, then I went and I was like, all right, I'm going to play the whole Omni book. And so I just played through it, you know? And it gets the sound of bebop lines is right in your head. Is it just, you just play through the whole thing. Um, so yes, I find it very useful to practice Charlie Parker solos and I just adjust them to make them comfortable on trombone. I mean, it's irrelevant. The jumping of octaves and stuff, you got to kind of just figure it out, but, um, it's super relevant and then it gets you going and it's hard and it's technical and it gets you, uh, really working to get your technique up. So I, uh, yes, definitely do it. And I tell you, like, it was a really eye-opening experience. And any student that goes and just does that, they have a huge advantage over other people because they know what bebop is supposed to sound like and they know what the rhythms are and they know how to make it flow because they've played through the whole Omnibook and it's long and there's a lot of stuff in there. So, And they've worked out how to, like, play that language and that can be part of them. So you don't have to memorize the whole thing. You don't have to, like, master it. But to play through it and get, like, a good handle on, like, a lot of a bunch of the solos is, like, a really good idea. But, like, am I going to do that in a lesson? And are we going to just, like, sit there and, like, work through the Omnibook? No, we're not. That's something, like, you got to go and do that on your own. Like, I can't. I'm not going to make you do that. Who did you study with at Eastman and what did you work on with them? Mark Kellogg was my teacher at Eastman. Uh, he's an amazing pedagogue. We worked on all kinds of things. He was very encouraging of me to work on what I wanted to work on. He held me to a very high standard of trombone playing technique-wise, um, being able to read tenor clef, alto clef, sight read duets, play in ensembles, have a good awareness of um, the repertoire, orchestral excerpts even. Um Worked on a bunch of Bach things. He was, you know, he pushed me to be able to bring in what I wanted to bring in and kind of push myself, which was important. He took one year, he took a sabbatical one year and that, or one semester rather. And I um, studied with Clay Jenkins for a bit and Jeff Campbell for a bit during that time, which is the trumpet professor and jazz bass professor. And we worked on tunes and improvising in different ways. So lots of different things there. What new things are you trying to bring to the UNT trombone studio in the fall 21 spring 22 semester? Uh, we instituted, we started, um, we have our weekly departmentals, uh, with the classical studio, but we recently started a jazz studio class as well. That's a new thing that we added. Um, last semester we did two, I think three and this semester we're doing four. And so we'll probably do continue to do three or four. It's kind of like a performance hour. Uh, and once we get back to being able to perform again, trying to find more gigs for the YouTubes, um, we're recording a CD, hopefully an album. I don't know if we'll print any CDs, but 
uh, hopefully recording an album this month. Sorry, next month, March. Hopefully being able to, you know, play that music and keep keep going there. I'm not sure what else. And other than I know that I want to get the grad students even more involved with the underclassmen sooner, maybe even um, getting them enrolled in secondary lessons sooner, especially their second year. Um, these are just things. I mean, I don't know. But this is going to require our grad students to be more involved with the underclassmen, which I think is really, really awesome. So when we get back to playing together again, what sorts of things will we find hard to do? Therefore, should how we practice them in anticipation? Playing with, I mean, it's going to be hard to play with other people. You know, you got to remember what that's like. Endurance is going to be a problem too. And by playing with other people, I mean intonation. I mean intonation and like ensemble, like blend and balance those type of things. But I think just like being able to last through the gig, you know, mostly those things, endurance, playing with others and in an improvised sense, like listening to the other people and not just playing like it's a play along. People get into, you know, practice room habits. Um, if you've been practicing in a, in a, in a, in a mute a lot, you're going to have like problems with your sound getting out. So I recommend like, if you can at least practice outside or something now and again, so you can really make some sound, um, and really get, uh, going there. But yeah, those are the type of problems I think we'll probably encounter is just mostly endurance and playing with other people and getting that musicality back. I mean, I don't think maybe most people lost it or anything like that, but just thinking that those are important things and remembering like, okay, I need to listen to everyone else more than me. That's what I think about. What does the music need right now? That's one question. And then the second question is, what is everybody else doing? Because I should not have to be thinking what I'm doing. I want to just be listening and... Um, reacting and playing with the other people in my group rather than like dictating everything myself, you know? Uh, what other horns do you own? Do you own large tenors or basses? Uh, I have one other horn. I play King 3B Plus, which is 525 medium bore. And I have an old um, Con 88H 1966 or seven with a rose brass bell. Um, that's my large bore horn. And I keep it for any time I need to play below the staff mostly. Uh, and that's it. I'm not a big gearhead, man. I don't wanna have a lot of trombones. Maybe one more would be nice in order to like have a backup, but I'm just not a gearhead and I'd rather um, not have to have space for a million trombones. You know, I don't want to have to have like an extra room just to house all my trombones. I like to be uh, nimble in the world. What do you feel are the advantages or disadvantages of using a trigger when improvising? Well, the advantage is you don't got to go to seventh position. The disadvantage is that it has a different sound resonance than um, a straight tenor. So if you're going back and forth, it's kind of difficult to match the sound. You can hear it when a bass trombonist is, is kind of playing between the trigger registers. Uh, the same thing happens. Somebody posted the other day on uh, the Jazz Trombone Facebook group about uh, some pictures of JJ playing like a King 4B. If they make a 3B with a trigger, I mean, it's like, it's not like better or worse. It's just different. It gives the horn a lot more weight. So it does change the sound in that way, having more weight to it. A little, nothing much though. I mean, there's no reason not to, if you want to have a valve, get a valve. Like, I don't know why, but there is the kind of like some unwritten rule that you're supposed to not have a valve or something. Like, I don't really know why, but it's, that's just a perception. Like you would, most people would never know whether it was large bore or small bore with a trigger. It's kind of silly, but um, there is that perception that people think like, oh, he's playing a horn with a trigger but it's like it's literally the same size like a 3b old 3b with a trigger is the same size as a 3b so um it's just a tool just a tool so I, there's probably more advantages to it than disadvantages to it i mean the way that i overcome it is that uh i play with a lot of alternate positions i don't i don't use first position as home base i use third or fourth position as home base robin eubanks uses trigger 
Dees played on a trigger horn for a long time. You, you want the tool that can get you, um, you know, the concept that you want to create uh, with your music. That's how, that's what I think. What is your opinion about jazz trombone using valve trombone? Is it a good or bad, or bad idea? Valve trombone is a different instrument. Valve trombone has a different, a different sound. It's not better or worse. It's different. Bob Brookmeyer comes to mind, you know, he's got a different kind of sound and um, it's a different instrument. Any new jazz artists have been inspiring me lately. Yeah. That shy maestro record is really good. Um, that's also Jack's question. Um, I've been revisiting Chick Corea records this week. I mean, I'm kind of paying attention to the, uh, mostly to like what people send me like for the label. I get a lot of um, different unreleased things. You know, I said uh, Stephen Feifke is a big band, which is pretty cool. That you might want to check out. They have a new single out today. Mike Dees has a new record out today. I don't, it takes kind of like a special re- record to really kind of hit you when you get so much volume of stuff all the time, you know, and you're just hearing little bits and pieces of a lot of different things. And I try to listen to like Spotify's like State of Jazz and New Jazz and like all the things that are coming out so I can just keep like a good idea of what's happening. Actually, like listening back with Jack to some of these uh, Dave Holland, he's been working on some Dave Holland music, uh, the Dave Holland Quintet, the Dave Holland like uh, Conference of the Birds record, and like just thinking about more free improvisation and like what that means, and like Julian Priesters on some of those things, and there's a lot of things that inspire. Nothing in particular though. I wish I could have a you know I wish I could have a better answer for you, but nothing like jumps out like that record. I'm kind of like one thing at a time kind of person, and like that record that shy maestro record is kind of what was on my radar this week i'm sure it'll be something else next week does that include the high range any tricks to keeping the tongue down and light yeah you have to change your shape of the vowel sound inside of your mouth from o to a to e so as you go so as you get into the upper register it's e sound so if you go e it gets the tongue a little bit out of the way but keep the tongue right behind the teeth but where it goes I was always told where the teeth meets the gums is where you want to hit with your tongue. So to, ta, ti. E in the upper register will focus the airstream and help you to tongue there. So what was the very first style of jazz you got into? And when you first started listening to combos, did you understand what people were saying in their solos or did you understanding come later? Understanding comes much later, man. That's for sure. I still don't really always understand what's happening. I mean, I have a way better understanding now than I did when I started. I started in 2003 in maybe the fall of 2002, but the spring of 2003 was when I seriously got into jazz, improvising, listening to jazz. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know it was a language. I didn't have one anyone really telling me what to do. I was just passionate about it, and I liked to just play. So I would just play and play and play. I, w- I had the Sonny Rollins Abersold, and I had a Blues and 12 Keys Abersold, and I had Jam Session. Those were the three that I had to start, and I just played all those different songs and just played. I didn't know what it was. Somebody told me to learn Curtis Fuller on Blue Train, so I tried to transcribe that, and I got frustrated and never finished it. The understanding came later. When I got to Eastman, like I did not know what anything was. I got into that first jazz theory class, and they said, okay, we're gonna play a sharp nine, flat nine. I was like, I'm sorry, what? So I had to learn the theory later, you know, I just um, played and I didn't really always, I didn't play, I was skating, you know, that's what we would call it now, skating over the changes. I was just playing kind of the notes that seemed important, um, the notes that didn't sound bad, but I didn't have any language. I was like playing a bunch of J.J. Johnson solos out of the J.J. Johnson book that Jamie Aversold published, transcription book. Um, And from there, um, learning those and then started getting inspiration, taking lessons with Wycliffe Gordon. And then 
I didn't get into Juilliard, went to Eastman, and that's when I started to really realize that I didn't know what the heck I was doing. It's natural that your playing changes over time, but are there any aspects of your playing that have stuck around even from when you first started to improvise? Oh, yeah, man. Like inconsistencies in like the way that I articulate, inconsistencies in my sound, um, the fact that I can't play a high F that that like paints, peels the paint, you know, like I just, that is really hard for me. Um, I can play the notes, but I can't like, gah, and I don't, I also don't want to really. It's not really my in my sound concept to do it at this point, but also it could be that my concept is informed by my weaknesses, right? That's just, I moved in a direction that kind of embraced the things that I was good at. I would say things that have stuck around also are like thinking of musicality first instead of language. You know, other teachers and other people like learn like, here, play this, play this, play this, play this. And they go language, 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 language. And I learned the other way, which was like create, 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 play, play, play. And a persistent frame of mind that I always come back to that I don't know if it's good or bad, um, but does come back again and again for me is the mythology behind people that we look up to, basically. Like they invented the language and they were just these magical like people that could just like make this stuff up come out fully formed you know but it's just like it wasn't the case like jj worked stuff out curtis worked stuff out slide played a lot of the same stuff um it was language that they learned like it took me a long time to realize that you had to work the stuff out and so um i still sometimes get tripped up on that that like like it sounds so magical how did they do that it's like well they did sort of work it out so i've had to adopt that not policy, but to be okay with like, you can go, you can like figure some things out. Like it's all right. You don't have to like hold this idea that it's a hundred percent magic a hundred percent of the time. You know, what happened to the 525 showers jazz trombone sent you? Did you send it back? Yes. Did, they do not have a 525. Yeah. They don't have, they don't make it. It was a, it was an experiment. Um, if you watch the video, there's a video on YouTube where I was playing this 525 shires and it just, there was something about it that was too locked in for me. I kind of go into it a little bit more. It's a great, I mean, they make great instruments. It has nothing to do with the build quality or the metal quality or them, that it just wasn't a good fit for what I wanted to do. It just kind of did one thing. It's the same way my Edwards kind of did one thing. And uh, I didn't, it didn't resonate with me as much as I wanted it to. You know, like I wanted it to be like magic, like, yes, this is the horn. And it wasn't like that. And so I was like, rather than kind of drag, drag this out and try to figure out something, we just kind of, I just kind of sent it back to them and then they went on. I, they did make it for a couple other people though. I know some other people that ended up buying one, but they are custom orders. So you can't, um, they'll do it. And I know they're good horns. And uh, so if you like Shires, you like the way Shires plays, then you might enjoy that. I know, um, another professor friend that had that went and got one after I got it and uh, he still plays it. He posted a video on it the other day. So you there, it's not going to be on the website, but I'm sure that they'll make it for you. There was a guy that worked there that I was friends with. He no longer works there. We kind of started the process. And so things just kind of got messed up and it never really ended up being what it was supposed to be. And um, just didn't work out and that's okay. So when you listen to and critique big bands, what are weaknesses they tend to have intonation, releases concept swing are the first things like the, the biggest thing for me is the swing concept especially with a younger band because uh, that's the that's the like thing that makes it sound like jazz and if it doesn't sound like jazz there you don't got a lot of hope uh no matter how tight your ensemble is in my opinion like the feel is is paramount like you gotta play authentically the feel 
at least as, as a, as a young player, as a person trying to understand the style, you got to play it to understand it, in my opinion. So the, the weaknesses are usually that they don't listen to jazz. That's quite honestly, it seems so simple, but it's totally true. And it's totally, um, under, underappreciated. When you walk into a band room, I mean, I'm not walking, you're not walking in now, but when I used to be doing a lot more clinics on the road, you could tell based on what was happening when you walk, when the students walk in the band room, this, the, the educators that are playing their students, the music, they just have the jazz radio on that have just a Spotify channel, or they just have a recording of something on when they enter and leave the room. You'd be surprised how big a difference it makes when they've heard what that music sounds like, even if they're not listening to it. It's amazing, man. And if you listen, if you sit and listen together and talk about like, why is this good? Why is this bad? What about this? Could we um, kind of take from it and put into our own performances? The listening thing is like, I know it seems oversimplified, but learning how to listen and then knowing how to say like, when is something good and when is something bad? Like, how do we define that? And then how do we take something from it and apply it to ourselves? And so that flow, the eighth notes, you know, it's it's always too heavy. It always sounds like boo da do da do da do da do da do da do da da, and that's not what jazz sounds like, right? I think of any jazz tune. Nobody plays that way. The only time you get that is like on a super heavy backbeat tune that's like a uh, little darling or something. That's like do da do da do da 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 that kind of thing. That only happens once in a while. That is not the way normally that jazz goes or jazz sounds. So, in my opinion. I don't know why everyone focuses on that. Do, da, do, da, do, da, do. Yes, uneven eighth notes is a part of playing jazz, but it's really not what makes jazz feel like jazz. To me, it's the accents and the flow of the eighth notes. It's upbeats, it's downbeats, it's not one or the other. Do you find that transcribing solos of different instruments develops more specific areas of technique on the trombone relative to those instruments? The short answer is yes. Every, every transcription that you undertake to me should have some kind of purpose. So if the purpose is to expand your concept, to expand your sound, uh, like a, playing with a good sound or like a deep swing or more vocabulary or different vocabulary, like you just pointed out, or it's a technical exercise cause it's really hard, um, or some combination thereof, like every single thing that you encounter that you go down the path of, I think it's important to realize like what you're trying to get out of it. I'm going to transcribe this train solo. There's certain things I'm not going to be able to do. I'm not going to be able to play sheets of sound. <laughs> you can't do it, man. It's important to realize what you can and can't do on the trombone. Skip over the parts, right? And then, you know, I had a student last year, last semester, there was transcribing last year, I transcribed some Mark Turner and there was just like certain things that we couldn't play at speed. And he's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm like, it's fine. You play trombone. You don't play saxophone. You can't do everything. You can't play intervallically fast, super clean as easily. You know, it's possible, sure. But like if, if it's above your level of technique, we're reaching, right? And so yes, to answer your question, it's like, yeah, it'll push you. Play guitar stuff, play piano stuff, play out. We're back to the beginning of today's Q&A, like playing through the Omnibook is gonna challenge your technique. The Bird Omnibook is gonna challenge your technique. You're gonna have to figure out how to play turns in different registers. You're gonna have to, you know, figure out all that stuff. So it's really important to um, to do that push yourself, you know, is this vibing still a thing you see happen on the jam session or is it mainly a thing of the past? No, people still vibe each other. 
I mean, I think there's like a healthy vibing and then there's the unhealthy vibing. You know, some people just vibe for the sake of vibe vibing. And then there's kind of silly vibing like um, or like non like different ways. Like people will call a tune a tune that you nobody knows <laughs> to just to vibe them or a hard song to get people off the bandstand. You know, that's one way people vibe. But um, I don't know if it'll continue into the future. But at a certain point, you need somebody to tell you the truth, you know. But whether they vibe you or not is besides the point, I suppose. But, you know, every once in a while, you need someone to like, okay, man, you don't really know that song. Maybe you want to check it out or like whatever. You know, some people tell me that they want to be, uh, they want me to be harder on them, for example. But, you know, I think that intrinsic motivation is really the only thing that lasts. And so to have somebody on the outside telling you what to do is good for the short term, but it's terrible for the long term because it trains you to expect that external motivation to push you to the next level, man. Internal motivation, intrinsic motivation is like the most essential thing I can try to cultivate in a student. I know that's not your question. I've been thinking about it. And so I wanted to say something about that. And it's just like, as an educator, if you can get the student to bring it on themselves to be hungry, that's that's it. If I have to be like, no, that's not it. Nope, 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 nope. If I have to vibe you, it's like kind of, Silly, right? But yes, you do get vibed at sessions if you don't know what you're doing. So quintessential Ellington albums, he asks. A lot of things are now on compilation, so it's hard to tell what... I don't even necessarily know what the albums are to begin with. I'm a big fan of his suites, though. We just played the Far East Suite the other day. I think that's essential. I think Such Sweet Thunder is essential. I love the New Orleans Suite also. So there's three. You could check those out. But otherwise, like, I mostly have, like, the complete recordings of such and such sessions. And um, so it's not really albums anymore because it's, like, so deep into that discography. Quincy Jones arrangements. Uh, there's a, a record that has JJ on it. That's Quincy Jones. Walking in Space, baby. Check that out. Walking in Space, that whole record. I think it's cool. It's a little funny. A little, it's kind of a little pop. But um, it's a good record. Fun arrangements. But I got to sign off. So thanks everyone for being here this week. We'll catch you next Friday. Have an amazing weekend.